The scripture reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 1 and chapter 2. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, an account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira wrote, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. So I think that's kind of self-explanatory. You know, we're going through a series of letters that were written by Jesus to a number of churches. And Susan and I are, uh, as, as we've been meditating on the close of our ministry among you, uh, we've been here in Philadelphia area for over 15 years. And we've been here with Liberty Church since we planted it uh, nine years ago. And this has been a really rich 
amazing time. We sort of feel like we lived 30 years in the last 15. And as I, I tried to come up with a list of, hey, what are some of the last words? What, if I could write a, a letter, a love letter to this congregation, what would I want to say? And I realized I couldn't do better than Jesus. So that's why we're looking at these letters that we, he wrote to these churches. That's one of the reasons I wanted to preach through these letters. They're letters, they're the love letters of Christ for his people. And his word here is very encouraging to us. And I hope as we open up this word today, you'll hear not just things I'd like to tell you, but things that Jesus wants to tell you. You know, as we have been reading these, every letter we've looked at, we're now on letter number four, every letter that we've looked at ends with the same phrase. Have you noticed it? What's the last thing that's said in this passage? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want you to get this. We're not digging through artifacts this morning. We're not researching ancient history this morning. We're not looking, reading someone else's mail this morning. This passage tells us, hear what God says to the churches. Not what God said. God's here. He is speaking this morning. He has something to say to you this morning. His presence is with us. Will you hear what he has to say? We're looking at this church, this letter to this little church in Thyatira. And it's, it's a great letter for liberty. Because it's a letter written to what is, scholars have said, the smallest church in the least important city. And yet it's the longest letter. Jesus has more to say to this little congregation that's in a very kind of unimportant place and are kind of unimportant, small, inconsequential people. And I find great hope in this. Because God does not look at you. He doesn't look at us in the way that we would evaluate ourselves. Our world judges by importance, by degrees, by how significant a person's name is. And look, God has significant words of encouragement to say. It's the longest letter to the tiniest church. The longest letter to the, the most insignificant group of people by worldly standards. And this should be words of encouragement for you. You may feel this morning coming into this place, who am I? Do I even matter? Do people even know who I am here? What, what am I doing here? You matter. God sees. He evaluates in ways that you do not So, God's speaking to you this morning. Will you hear what he has to say? God sees you and says, you are not insignificant. Liberty Church, you're not insignificant. Let's draw near an encouragement as we look at this letter. Like the other letters of the series, um, these words are addressed to a congregation that's dealing with a, a, in a unique historical place and time. And there are words both of commendation that Jesus says. Here's some great things about what's going on. And also some words of challenge to this congregation. And as you look at the words of encouragement in, in, here in verse 19, we read here that this is, a, this is a great church. Good things are happening in Thyatira. Ministries are growing. Stuff is being changed. This church is one of the most highly commended of the, of the seven churches. 
you know, if you were moving, if you were in the time you're like thinking about moving, hey, we may be relocating somewhere in Turkey, where would I like to go? This is the poppin' church. This is, people say, you ought to go check out the church in Thyatira. This is the great church. And yet, Jesus commends them and then says, but. You know, if you've had a performance review recently, your boss says, I've got all these great things to say about you, but. You're like, here it comes, right? You're having the DTR. You're having the DTR in your significant relationship, right? And, and you get through, you're, you're talking about how great things are going, but. Oh, no, here it comes. And Jesus comes here, and this is the point where when someone says but, this is the place where you lean in. You listen up. You sit up. Say, I need to hear what is being said. And here as we read this letter, Jesus is saying, but. There's great things going on, but, and we need to sit up this morning. Listen. Lean in. There's some things that we, like this little congregation, need to hear. You may be surprised at Jesus' but in this passage. What does he have against them? Look at verse 20. But this is I have against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, and is a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. What's their problem? They're so tolerant. That's right. Tolerant. That's their problem. These are such a, a tolerant, accepting group of people. Some of you are here this morning and you're like, this is exactly what's wrong with the church. I know this kind of people. These intolerant Christians. I know these kind of people. Some of this, this passage confirms your every fear about the Christian church. You're like, I know these Christians because they are people who tend to be incredibly hypocritical. They, they tend to look down their nose at anyone who doesn't exactly measure up. You know, how could Jesus have a problem with their tolerance? So before you start taking your bulletin and turning it into a to-do list or a grocery list, I want you to hear what this has to say. Tolerance in our culture sits at the top of the virtue food pyramid. It's the, the virtue that is underscored in our culture as being unquestionably the highest virtue. And yet, is that really what we want to buy into as a community, as a culture? I, I was at this, the gym this past week and I was working out normally and I happened to be walking out and saw there's, there's a magazine called Teaching Tolerance. It's a monthly periodical. Tolerance is a buzzword in our culture. And nowadays we don't use the words um, wrong or right anymore. We talk about people being inappropriate because that would be intolerant for us to say that someone's doing something wrong. We don't talk uh, to kids about being doing wrong things. We say, you made a bad choice. You're a good girl, but you made a bad choice. And I think that when critics of Christianity want to shut up Christians, their favorite verse, their favorite verse to kind of throw back, like pull out the pen and throw at Christians back to us is what? Matthew 7, 1, do not judge. Do not judge or you'll be judged. And so it's, this is right in the cultural conversation. Tolerance is a virtue. Is it? Is it? If, if you go to work this week and you find you're, you have a boss that tolerates harassment, that tolerates discrimination, 
You would say, no, that's, that's wrong. That's wrong for me. No, I don't want that. What, what if you go to the doctor this week and the doctor says, I know you're in a lot of pain, but you can tolerate that. Like, no, I don't want to tolerate that. I don't want to tolerate pain. Should parents accept as okay all kinds of behavior from their children? No. We, you look at these situations, you say, no, that there are some things that are intolerable. There are some things that we should not tolerate. And Jesus looks at this church and says, your behavior, your tolerance, I want to put in the same category as as boss who tolerates discrimination. I want to put your toleration of this woman, Jezebel, in the same category as the doctor who would tell you to tolerate pain or the parents who are told, tolerate any kind of behavior from your kids. No, there are some things that are intolerable. And love and truth do have a trump card over all kinds of tolerance. It's not just tolerance in any, in any situation. Here's the situation. Here's what's happening in the city that Jesus speaks to. It's a city that is very different from any of the ones we've looked at so far. We've been looking at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, which were more cultural centers that had... Uh, universities that had libraries, that had people debating great ideas. This city, Thyatira, is kind of a blue-collar city. There's nothing significant going on in this town. In fact, the only thing that was really going on is the unions. Like Philadelphia, Thyatira is a union town. So, in other words, in order to be a baker in Thyatira at the time, you had to join the union. If you, were, uh, if you were a carpenter, you were part of the carpenter's guild or union. You, if, you were, if you made shoes, you had to be a part of the union. And honestly, there was no way to feed your family. It was very, very difficult to survive in the city of Thyatira without being a part of one of these powerful guilds, one of these powerful unions. We understand that. In Philadelphia politics, who are the main players in Philly? You may not know this. Some of you are new here. The unions. This is a union town. Teachers' union, electrical union, uh, pipefitters' union, they are powerful lobbies. They are powerful influences in, in Philly politics. We're a, we're a union city. And, and like all unions, all unions have, what, dues, right? You have to pay your dues. In that time, in that place, the way that you would, you would pay your dues is by participating fully in every activity that was part of the union life. So you had to go to all the meetings. And that included going to some feasts where they ate meat that had been sacrificed to other gods. It included going to sexual orgies. And you participated all the way in everything that was going on. In our day, you pay money. And that day, you paid with yourself. You showed up at everything. And here's the problem facing these Christians at Thyatira. This is the problem. We can't feed our families if we're not part of a union. This is really hard. It, it's a subtle and yet very powerful form of pressure. These people were not, like the people we've talked about so far, facing persecution. They're not facing burning, bur- being burned at the stake. We've read some pretty horrible stuff so far. Some of you have looked kind of green as I've described what's happened to Christians in these, in these, described in these letters. But this one's very different. These people who are facing economic and job-related issues if they don't participate in the full life of the city. Now, isn't this the timeless question? 
This is the timeless question for every Christian since Jesus was raised from the dead. How much do I fit in? How much do I participate in the life of my office? In your office, in your place of work, there's a culture. There are emails that are forwarded. There are jokes that are told. There are ways of relating. There are after-work parties. There are trade shows to go to. There are other residents you interact with. There are, you know your particular place of work. And the question is, what does faithfulness look like within that place? How much do you participate? How much do you be weird? How much do you set yourself apart? No one wants to be Holy Jane or Bible Bob. No one likes that. What's the most, who was the most terrible character, the most terrible character in the office? The one that nobody really likes. Meredith, right? Meredith is the hypocritical Christian. Angela, why do I, I wrote it down wrong. Angela, yes. Angela, in, in the office, is the hypocritical Christian. She's the one who is clearly way uptight and yet clearly shows herself to be not consistent. She's judgmental. She's angry. She points her finger at everybody else. She's the head of the party committee. Nobody wants to be that person. Some of you know these pressures. This is where you live. You have thousands of small decisions It feels like all the time. Who am I in this context? Am I the same? How much do I want to be to show off this kind of super hidden identity thing? See, there's a solution. This woman, she's called Jezebel. That's not her real name. I'll explain that in a second. She comes up with a solution. And she says this. She said, "You you don't have to worry about this so much. You people are so worked up. And we could tell from this passage that Jezebel is part of the church. She's not somebody who's outside with picket signs marching around the church meeting. She's a part of the congregation. And she comes up with a solution and she says this. She says, you, look, as a Christian, Jesus died to set you free. You don't have to worry about this so much. You're getting all worked up. You're okay. The It's okay. You can live a life of freedom in Christ, and what you do doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Participate. You know, it's it's fine. It's not a big deal. You can still engage in the sex rites of the fertility cult. You can still eat the meat sacrificed to idols. You're not, it's not going to hurt you. These are called, in verse 24, the deep things. She's been calling these. These are deep things. I have a deeper set of knowledge. You guys just, you're kind of shallow. You're kind of black and white. Grow up. Mature. Be like me. And Jesus has some pretty hard words to say about this. He he casts this in a different light. First, he calls her Jezebel. Now, this woman's name is not Jezebel. This would be like someone in our culture being named Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot or Stalin. It's just not done. Jezebel is a historic figure from the Old Testament who was married to King Ahab. When she... Ahab married outside the royal family, outside, I mean, outside the, not the royal family, outside of the, the culture and the, and the country. And this is in 1 Kings 17 and several chapters beyond that. He marries this woman, Jezebel, and he brings, when she moves in after the honeymoon, she moves in with 800 prophets to the false god Baal. Cozy little family, you know. 
She brings her false, 800 false prophets with her and begins a, a systemic um, destruction of the worship of the living God within Israel. She starts killing off prophets everywhere she can, prophets of God, and replacing worship of God with worship of Baal. And she does this throughout the country. And this almost destroyed the people of Israel. This is one of the biggest blots on the record of the Old Testament. This woman single-handedly brought about some of the worst years in the life of Israel. And it took generations and generations, really, to kind of move past this. And they never really got over it. This was one of the things that led to the downfall of Israel. And so when Jesus says, this woman's called Jezebel, it'd be like someone, one of the girls here this morning, who's, somebody comes to you and says, you know that guy you're dating? He's kind of like Adolf Hitler. You'd be like, yeah, I understand what you mean. He's bad news. Jesus says, this is not her name, but he's saying, this is the kind of destruction that she is doing. These people are like, look, we don't see that. What we do, it doesn't seem to affect, it's, it's harmless. What's the harm? No, no one's really being hurt here. What's being affected? Jesus says, no. I give you, I'm giving you this historic word picture that would have been vivid in their minds to say, this person's like Jezebel. This is destructive beyond what you can imagine. And second, he describes the cultural accommodation that she is promoting in some very graphic terms. He says this, for you to participate in these idol feasts or sex parties... It's like adultery. It's like adultery. Verse 22, he says, he says, those who are following Jezebel, or it's like you have committed adultery with her. And he's not saying these people have slept with Jezebel. He says, it's like you're two-timing me. Jesus has that strong a language for this. Now, as we've been looking at this book of Revelation, there's a dominant theme throughout the book. It describes Jesus as the groom... And his church as the bride. This is a phrase that's repeated throughout Scripture. And some of you are very uncomfortable with this. There's some manly men here this morning who are like, I hate the Jesus calling us a bride. And I have to say, like I said a couple weeks ago, women are called sons of the Most High God. You're going to have to get over it. You're going to have to get over it. Because this is, a, this is an illustration you need to understand. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Jesus comes and describing himself as a groom, he comes and just like a groom, uses words, says, I'm going to love you in sickness and in health, in riches and in poverty, till death do us part. And just like modern grooms, it's great to have the engagement. The engagement's nice. We all smile at the engagement. You get Somebody gets a ring. It's all happy. We take pictures. But the real deal is when he shows up, he gets in the, the tux, he stands in front of a guy like me and says, my bank account's your bank account. My name is your name. I show up when you're sick. I keep my vows to you. I walk even though this is hard, even though it hurts, even though this is, this is painful for me. And this is what Jesus does, right? He comes and he puts on the human skin. He comes and puts on the tux. He shows up and he says, you can be called by my name. He comes and he says, my bank account, the resources of my forgiveness and my righteousness are yours. And he comes and loves us not till death do us part, but he comes and dies for us. 
So when Jesus talks about spiritual adultery, it reframes this discussion. So we hear this passage. Some of us are like, this, is, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Why does it matter? Jesus says, I have loved you this way. I am like a spouse. You are my bride. I want your first love. I want your attention. I, you're a cultural adaptation to the unions. You're urban camouflage. You look like everybody else. You act just like everybody else. Your easy acquiescence to the standards of Thyatira, you are two-timing me, and it matters. In confronting this evil, Jesus is calling that church then and this church now to a new level of holiness. Holiness is a bad word today. I know that people don't like that word. It makes you think of dour pilgrims. It makes you think of dowdy people wearing frocks. It makes you think of people who just say, no! But holiness is the calling to live as those who have eyes for our groom. See, the Bible always puts this in context of relationship. It's never holiness to live according to a standard. It's holiness to live in relationship with a living God who loves us this passionately, this deeply. It's living out the context of a relationship. It's saying, Jesus, you're the only eyes that matter. Your affection, your desires, your pleasure, that's what I'm living for. Because I know how much that you've come and you've made vows. You put on the, the human skin. You have given me your name. You've given me your bank account. You have died for me. Holiness. It's a calling of God's people. And he's calling us, as he was calling the, the people of Thyatira, to a more consistent life as his beloved bride. Consistency with this. We are to be demonstrate to a watching world what it means to be captured by the love of Jesus. And to help out this church and to help out us, he gives us two pictures. He gives us two pictures of Jesus. And like we've been reading in all these, these passages, we read from chapter 1, this just very different picture of Jesus than probably most of you have carried around in your head. Flaming sword, feet like bronze. A wild picture. Jesus shows him this picture and he highlights a couple things for each congregation. This one, he highlights two things I want you to see. And I will tell you that how you see this, how you respond to these images, doesn't just tell me what you think about Jesus. It tells me whether you know him. Jesus says two things here. He says, I'm going to show you how I, am, I have eyes like burning fire and feet like bronze. Now, when I was a youth pastor back in the 90s, I had, uh, we had this little youth group in Florida and the youth room, and somebody gave us those 3D pictures to put on the wall. And the 3D pictures that were done by computers, you remember, this was like a phase, nobody had, nobody, does anybody have those? I don't think so, right? Nobody has those anymore. But the 3D pictures, and it looks like computer-drawn squiggly lines. And they brought them in and hung them up in the youth room. We had like five of these. And I could not see them. I, all I saw was squiggly lines. And apparently there was a trick to seeing them. You had to look at the picture just sort of so and look sort of through the picture and not at the picture and suddenly would jump out. And, of course, this is a youth group. So there was Jesus with the crown of thorns. And there was the three crosses, right? There's the empty tomb, right? It, come on, it's, it's youth group. You have to have this kind of stuff. But it drove me nuts because forever I couldn't see these things. I had to have somebody help me to see this. 
looking at these pictures that Jesus is going to give us is going to be the same way. Some of you are going to see a bunch of squiggly lines. You're going to be like, this is, this is kind of a hard thing to stomach, this picture of Jesus. But others of you, I hope, will be able to see something else that jumps out through the page. Let's look at these two images. First, it describes here in verse, verse 19 that Jesus has, sorry, is that right? Verse, uh, yeah, verse 19. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. I don't know about you, but what first comes to mind in seeing this image is, what? No, Lord of the Rings. Come on, people. You know, I only have one movie I quote from. Right? Lord of the Rings, Sauron, the flaming eye. Right? This is a dominant image throughout the movie. And if you've watched the Lord of the Rings 12 times like I have, you've seen this image is burned on your memory. The flaming eye. It's searching everywhere. And like all the hobbits and the elves and all those people, they all want to avoid the eye. Because the eye is searching. The eye is penetrating. If the eye Get you in its grasp. There's something that happens. People kind of tense up and fall to the ground and look like they're in great pain. This is some of what's being described here. Right? We read this in verse 23. God is the one who searches the heart and the mind. It's a quotation from Jeremiah 17. I am the Lord who searched the heart and the mind to give to each man according to what he has done. So, just like the word of the rings, you don't want the eye. You don't want the eye of God. Jesus gives us a picture of the incredible holiness of God. The incredible depth of the difference between you and God. Who wants the gaze? It's like the hobbits. You want to shrink back from this. The Bible tells us no one can stand. Who is righteous? Who is right? Who is upright? Before the eye of God, shouldn't we shrink back? Shouldn't we shrink back? But look, is that all you see in the picture? Is that all you can see in this picture? Remember whose eye it is. See, if you... These images are not meant to inspire fear. But this congregation would have... These images would have inspired confidence, assurance, a sense that God is with them and loves them. So... They see something here that maybe you and I don't. Let me show you. This is the eye of Jesus, who is like the bridegroom. He's like the groom, who looks upon his people and is pleased. Psalm 34, David says this way, The eyes of the Lord are always on the righteous. Every time you read those words about being righteous in the Old Testament, you need to say, Jesus, his name. Because it is only in him that we are righteous. And because of what he has done for us, we read these passages in the Old Testament, the eyes of the Lord on the righteous. Do you know if your bridegroom has come and taken on your sin, then his eye for you is not the searching eye. It's one of delight, of absolute care, absolute intimacy, absolute love. I have little kids, and one of my favorite things that little kids say is, Daddy, watch this. Daddy, look at me. Why do they do that? 
Are they just confident in their antics? Are they confident in their ability to balance? And all? No, they're confident of me. They're confident that their dad loves them and wants to see them. Psalm 139 is this passage that is absolutely overbearing. I encourage you to read this. Psalm 139, it's a very familiar psalm to many people. It says, God says, look, I know you. I know a word before it's on your tongue. I know what's in front of you and behind you. Even when you're asleep, I see you. There's not a, a, a thought that appears in your head that I don't know. And David, who says this, has the audacity at the end of it to say, search me and know me more. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way and lead me in the everlasting way. This is a man who knew not just the eye of Sauron. He knew the eye of the daddy. He says, Jesus, watch this. See me. Do you see what's incredibly intimate about this image? The Holy Father who says, I have loved you this way. This is the gospel, people. Jesus, the only perfect one, the only one who could stand before the eye of God, yet the night before he's about to be about to be killed, he's weeping because he knows what's about to happen. And the next day as he's hanging on the cross, we're told that the eye of God turned away from him in his sin. The eye of the daddy turned away. So that the so that and he did that. part of what happened there at that moment on the cross is a picture of what has been changed in your relationship with God. If you're a Christian, you're saying, I own that I could not stand before the eye of Sauron, that picture of God that searches and knows. And yet, because Jesus has taken my sin on the cross, all that's left in that eye is delight, joy absolute affection for you. Daddy, look at this. Look at me. Do you live for the eye of the one that the only one that matters? Jesus showing us this picture. He's saying, what you see, this world that looks so real to you, your office environment, the people around you, the ways that you're tempted to sell me out, Those are such powerful influences in your life. You need this picture. You need bigger pictures of Jesus to help purge us from what is such a dominant image in our lives. Influences. Well, how do I fit in? How do I live my faith out here? I I guess I I just have to do, do the Jezebel thing. I just have to fit in. Jesus says, no, live for the eye of the one who matters. Second, what did we see here? You see, Jesus, who's got on bronze boots. Now, I don't know about you, but first thing I think of is steel-toed boots. Jesus is putting on his steel-toed boots to kick, come kick some tail in Thyatira. Is that all that's going on here? Jesus is coming with his boots of bronze to stomp them out? To bring judgment on his enemies? On his people? What's happening here? Why bronze? Bronze is a mixture of iron and copper. And therefore it has two really powerful um, uh, element, uh, characteristics. It has all the strength of iron with the enduring nature of copper. It's, it's, put, them, put them together and you get this strong and enduring metal. 
And Jesus showing these people, hey, I'm putting on my boots. What is he saying? He's saying, these are the feet that stand firm. These are the feet that stand firm. Notice later on in this passage, he calls them, verse 25, to hold fast until I come. Hold fast. Hang in there. Keep your feet established. Why would Jesus show him his feet? Because this is what he's saying. My feet are the ones that are truly steadfast. Hold on to me as I'm holding on to you. We read these paradoxes in Scripture, right? Persevere to the end. Hold fast. And Jesus says in John 10, I have you in my hand. No one can take me out of you out of my hand. In Psalm 63, Jesus, Jesus is uh, reading this. David's kind of pouring out this litany of descriptors for God. He has this great image. He says, I cling to you. My, my soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. It's like someone lying flat on the hand of God holding on for dear life, and yet who's really holding? God is. When my two-year-old is scared and jumps into my arms and clings on to me because he's frightened, whose strength is holding him there? It is not his, no matter how much he's holding on. It's my strength. And Jesus, in showing you this picture of his boots, is saying this paradox Hold on to me, but I'm the one who's holding on to you. Hold on to me. Stand firm, but know that I'm wearing the boots that are, in, that are unmovable. My foot never slips. I'm not going to drop you. I'm not going to let go. Persevere. You see how beautiful these images would have been to this church? These people who are struggling, saying, I don't know if I can feed my family if I, if I leave these guilds. I don't know if I'm going to fit in or be accepted here anymore if I actually live out this practical holiness that you're calling me to. And Jesus says, my eyes matter and my feet stand firm. And then he tells him one more thing. He says, in the last part of this passage, we read this. He says, to those who stand firm, who hold on, I will give the morning star. Do you know what the morning star is? Do you know what planet that is? Venus. Venus is the morning star. It appears all around the world right before dawn in the lower, lower sky and right where the sun's going to come up. And for people, most of us have not been those folks who have to stay up all night keeping vigil with some work. But if you were a soldier or a sailor, if you had some kind of job that required you to stay up all night, you know, no matter how dark the night is, when Venus appears, the dark's about to go away. The day is about to come. There's going to be a dawning. This word to this church says this. I know things are bad. I know things are really hard for you right now. I know you feel intense pressure just to be like everyone else. But there's there's a star on the horizon. There's going to be a dawning. And what may seem real right now in this half-light is not what's going to be real in the bright light of day. I used this illustration last week. So some, some of the women among us or girls among us know this. If you're trying to dress for an event that's going to happen in the bright sunshine, and you do so at, at home in your sort of half-lit room, you know that dressing kind of in the half-dark under electric lights may 
be hard for when you go outside. You may have to adjust your makeup or whatever. Because dressing in under electric lights, things don't always appear for what they are. But the bright sunlight reveals everything for what it will be. And the question, the dawning of the star, is this, are you dressing your life right now? Are you dressing for the half-lit world? Are you dressing, is your life, is, is what you're picking out to put on yourself? Dressing and preparing for the bright light that is to come. Are you, are you tempted just to kind of match what everyone else is doing? Because it's kind of dim. It's hard to see. Are you dressing? Are you preparing yourself? Are you living in light of the world that is to come? The dawning that actually will happen. We're in a rough spot, aren't we? We live in Philadelphia. This is not an easy place to live sometimes. The same issues confronting the church then confront you in your work this week, in your relationships this week. How do I live out my life here? How much do I fit in? Do I open the emails that come that I know have porn in them from my coworkers? Do I joke with everybody the way that they do? Do I, do I go to all the trade shows? How long do I stay? Do I go to the after work parties knowing that that's where the contract, that's where deals are made, but I have to sort of be like everyone else? These are real issues for us, aren't they? Don't you live right here? A thousand decisions every day? Is this sort of some kind of secret knowledge that I have about Jesus? I sort of keep it to myself. It's sort of a nice thing. How much is it calling you to live a life of holiness? How are you going to do this? One of the hard things about the Bible is it's not an encyclopedia. It doesn't say, for you architects, here is exactly how you're going to live out being an architect within your office. It doesn't say, medical residents, these are some of the issues that you're going to face. How do you, are you going to do this? There are two things. One is by looking to Jesus. Remember this picture. Remember the eyes. Remember the feet. Remember the morning star. But the second is this. Look to each other. God's given you a church. God's given you other Christians to work this out with. And one of my fears that we are people who are honest about sort of the private things that we're dealing with, but we're not honest about these struggles. We don't talk about how hard it is to be a Christian in your place of work. We don't know how to talk about that as a community. We're ashamed. We're ashamed of some of the things we've done. We're ashamed of sort of the ways that we've sold out. And therefore, we keep our mouths shut. We don't talk about this. Look at how we are supposed to help each other. Remember when I quoted the early part of the sermon, do not judge, from Matthew chapter 7. The context of that statement really matters. Matthew 7 describes hypocrisy. So here are all the ways that people act like hypocrites. Don't judge each other. It goes on to say, how about you, you hypocrites? You got a big old log sticking out of your eye, and your brother's got a speck in his eye, and you're going over and trying to like, hey, let me help you out with that. Let me go pick that out of your eye. He says, no, take the log out of your own eye. He's, he's confronting the people of her, their hypocrisy. And yet it doesn't say, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye. It says, take the log out first. In other words, 
And this is complicated. Jesus is saying, there are right circumstances where we're called to exercise judgment in each other's lives. When we come to communion at the table, like we do in a few minutes, I say, examine yourselves. Judge yourselves. There are places in Scripture we're called to confront each other on sin. And it says, be careful. Look at your own heart and then go deal with your brother or sister in their sin. We are called to exercise judgment. And it's an easy thing just to say, oh, we don't have to do this. We're called to be people who exercise judgment. And we need it. We need one another to help one another judge, evaluate, figure out what it means to live lives of faithfulness here. There are two problems with us as a culture of Christians. I'm afraid half of us are duck hunters and half of us are frogs. That's what I mean by this. You know what a duck hunter does. He takes a shotgun, goes out and sits by a pond. Ducks come over your head. They land. You blow them out of the water. And there are lots of Christians like this. You know, man, I see sin. Boom, I'm ready to blow you away. And a lot of you have been around Christians like this. And you're like, yes. Ah, I don't want those kind of people around me. I don't want duck hunters. That's probably not most of our problem. The other alternative that I see is the fish, is the frogs. You know the proverbial frog in the kettle thing? I don't even know if this is really true, but it makes a great anecdote. So you put a frog in lukewarm water, you stick it over a low heat, and the frog will stay in the water until the water boils and you have frog soup. It will never jump out because it doesn't feel... It feels a gradual, gradual change in the water temperature. And I, I think that there are dangers in the duck hunter approach. But there's also a great danger in being a church full of frogs who don't discern, who don't judge, who don't evaluate their circumstances and say, am I just raising my temperature to be the same as everyone else? See, we're called to be a church of distinctiveness. Not one that pulls out the shotgun, and not one that turns into frog soup either. We're called to exercise judgment. What's interesting in this passage are verses 26 and 27. You may gloss over this and say, I don't even understand what this means. And I'll tell you, I don't understand all of what this means. He talks here in verses 26 and 27. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces. What's going on there? He's saying, something in the future for Christians, for this church in Thyatira, you're going to be given authority to make judgments. There's something eternal about this. In the world that is to come, you will be making some kind of judgments, exercising authority. So how about we be people who exercise a little bit of that now? And begin practicing what it means to help one another understand our context. uh, Understand what it means to live a life of faithfulness here. If that's our future, how do we work that out now? Here's my calling for you. Liberty Church, we're people who are called to love and live in, live out the life of the gospel together in this city. There's part of us that wants to embrace all of that. That is so great. We love our city. But God has also called us to be people here who are distinctly showing off to the watching world what it means to have a bridegroom who loves us. You need others in your life. I ask you this week, this is my application for you for this sermon, 
to sit down with someone from your home meeting and talk about what you're dealing with? What are the unique challenges that you have in your world for living out your faith? And ask that, invite that person, like pull back the curtain, the Oz curtain. Let Toto come and pull back the curtain to see what's behind the scenes of your life. And let them see the areas where you're struggling and invite someone to pray for you in that area. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.